right, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here this morning. Today we're going to be reading in the second chapter of the book of Joel. We'll be reading the first 17 verses. So uh, Joel chapter 2, 1 through 17. And when you find it, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? All right. Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been seen before, nor will be again after them, through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way, they do not swerve from their past. They do not jostle one another, each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them and the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord uttered his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we thank you this morning, Lord, for bringing us here, giving us this time together. Lord, thank you for uh, your word. And once again, for the privilege of having it before us and being able to open it and, and consider your truth. Lord, uh, we are always dependent upon you for understanding. And so we, we acknowledge that, asking, Lord, that you grant understanding. By your Spirit, Lord, open up our minds, our hearts to your truth. Use it to change us to further your work within us and conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ and 
use it to bring glory and honor to your name. Let your name be hallowed, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated. Amen. Well, this is a, a, a fascinating uh, little book, uh, but it is um, definitely a challenge when it comes to interpretation. Um, so, you know, it's all, always... Um, my determination, my, my, uh, what, what I try to make uh, happen and try to make it known as well, is when you're, when you're dealing with something, uh, and really this is the case with all of Scripture, I guess it just becomes more evident when you're dealing uh, with, with passages that are more difficult to interpret. Um, but what, what, what I've tried to make my habit is to um, be honest about those things that are in question. And, you know, sometimes what we do is take a look at, at different um, interpretations, different uh, ways of of, uh, of applying the text, while at the same time trying to emphasize what is clear, and those things are always present. Um, the main points, I think, I think it's probably safe to say, the the main points. Anytime you're looking at a at a particular book of the Bible or or passage, uh, maybe just individual passage of Scripture. If, you, if you're looking for the main points, those are usually crystal clear. Crystal clear, if not always. Sometimes, uh, for example, the book of Revelation. And, and, of course, what we're looking at here is, is not much different from it. But the book of Revelation, a lot of times people are intimidated by and they say, you know, I can't, can't understand it. Well, there's, there's a lot there that we may not understand or know for sure. But the main points come through loud and clear. And that is, of course that Jesus is Lord, that He rules and reigns forever, that God is sovereign, that um, God wins in the end and that we win because of what Christ has done in our behalf. Those, those things are crystal clear in the book of Revelation. So when you look for those things, um, you, you, you find much uh, to, uh, to learn and much to be encouraged by. So we kind of take that approach here too. Now, I want to mention this as well. I was going to mention this earlier on, but some of you were here, uh, I guess most of you were here, uh, when Jim McCarty was with us a couple months back, um, and he he did a, a really good job of of, uh, of giving some explanation um, um, of the different genres represented in Scripture and, and showing you how to recognize some of those. Um, so, with that in mind, those of you that were here, um, what category would you put the majority of this book in? Anybody want to answer that? Poetry, exactly, exactly. And and the way that you can tell that in an in an English um, translation is by the typesetting, because the editors have uh, uh, they they treat it differently. They you know because there's a rhythm to it, there's a flow to it, and so um, you you look at you. I mean you can tell just by looking at the the white on the page. Um, poetry looks like that because it is it is set in verse where. If you look at prose, like, for example, this section of 1 Samuel, um, the page is almost full of text um, because it is prose. It's not poetry. So, so you, you know, it's just a simple way to tell and a way that the editors help us, uh, editors of modern editions help us uh, determine that. So, so that immediately ought, ought to have us kind of uh, 
on guard or, or looking at this differently when we approach these things so that we don't take, uh, I guess what I might call a, a hyper-literal approach or, or an over-literal approach. I, I am definitely a believer in um, literal interpretation of the Bible. I take it literally from, from Genesis through Revelation. Um, but within that, you have to understand that that means those parts that are literally intended to be symbolic... I take as symbolic. <laughs> okay? That's part of understanding the literal approach. It doesn't mean that you take every single thing literally because it's not intended to be taken that way. So we have, we have examples of that here. So let, me, let me just give you kind of what's, to me, kind of a funny example of that. Um, this church we attended years ago, and of course Dan and Sheila will remember this, but um, we we sang a song that was taken from this text, and I, I like it, still like it, you know, just because it's a. Uh, I mean, as far as the music, still still like it, just because it's a neat sounding little song in a minor key. Um, but it comes from <clears throat> verse one: "Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound alarm in my holy mountain." And then verses uh, verse nine, rather they they uh, in, the, in the King James, I think it says something like they run on the city, they rush on the city, they run on the walls, something like that. So that's the way the song went. And, and then, um, great is the army who carries out his word. Um, what verse is that? It's here. I'm not, my eyes aren't falling on it at the moment. But, but great is the army that carries out his word. So we would sing that, you know, they... They, they, they rush on the city, they run on the wall. Great is the army that carries out his, law, his word. You know, blow the trumpet in Zion. Well, and then, you know, of course, everybody you know, would, would get excited about it because you're thinking, you know, it's the army that carries out his word. That's, that's us. That's the church, right? And then one day in my, my own Bible study, you know, as I'm reading through Joel, it, it hit me that this is talking about grasshoppers. <laughs> Not the people of God. The army that carries out His word here is worms and grasshoppers. Uh, so it, it's not exactly. I mean, you know, there there are lots of good songs for uh, rallying the troops, but this is probably not not uh, not a good text to uh, to to build a song uh, on for rallying the troops. Uh, in fact, <laughs> in fact, it's it's quite different, which we're, which we're gonna we're gonna talk about this morning. So. Yeah, blow the trumpet in Zion. Now, that is talking about God's people. We'll come back to that in a minute. He's saying, sound the alarm in Zion among God's people. Uh, Zion is Jerusalem, um, literally. Um, but, but we could apply that as, as the people of God, you know, as a, as a word to God's people. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. That's another, another way of referring to Jerusalem. Um, but when you get down to, um, they, they leap. Verse 9, they leap on the city, they run on the walls, and so forth. Great is the army that carries out his word. That is talking about a plague of locusts, grasshoppers, worms um, that eat vegetation. And as we talked about last week, cause great devastation. So, this is poetry. So, so the, 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 the author, Joel, speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit uses God-given, because again, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, he uses God-given metaphors and analogies to, to describe the, um, the plague of locusts and the destruction that they are doing. And, and one really tip-off to that 
are all the similes here. I mean, there are, there are many. Look, look at verse 2, for example. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Um, like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Now, again, that's talking about locusts, but he's saying it's, it's, like, it's like blackness uh, on the mountains when you've got a, a, a whole host or an army spread on the mountains. Like is the key word there. That's a simile. Or you go down a little further, and when he's describing their uh, invasion, uh, that is the invasion of the locusts, he says in verse 4, their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. See, I mean, he's describing their, their, their advancement and their appearance like a, like a great cavalry of war horses. Um, and then he says in verse 5, as with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, which horses don't do real well, uh, for example, but, but grasshoppers do, locusts do. <clears throat> they leap on, leap on the top of mountains. And then he goes on to say, like the crackling of a flame of fire devour, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Verse 7, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. You, you get the picture. It's a metaphor. God, God is referring to this plague of locusts as a great, mighty army that is unstoppable. Now, that's, that's, those are the, the truths that are evident here. At least some of them. We're going to cover some more as well. But the idea here is that there is, there is an invasion. There is devastation of the land. And it's unstoppable. Just like if there were a great, powerful army invading the land... That would that would overwhelm the Israelites and and uh, and raise the the city of Zion and so forth. Um, like that, these locusts come in, and and nobody can do anything about it. They they are so, they're so numerous, so thick um, that that they can't stop them, and they they literally devastate. Uh, their crops, uh, and not, you know, they're, they're gone. I mean, we talked about that last week, and you're going to see more evidence of that here in chapter 2. All right, so um, what is the point in all of this? Well, it, it is a um, proclamation of judgment, okay? Judgment upon the land. So kind of the main point in this whole part we're going to discuss this morning is it, it is a warning. Joel is giving a warning to the people to take heed to the Lord's warning of judgment and return to Him for salvation from the enemy, from the Lord's judgment. That is, return to Him for salvation from the enemy and from, from the Lord's judgment. Salvation from the Lord's judgment. And to receive fullness of blessing and restoration of joy in Him. All right. So in other words, Joel is calling by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is calling the people to prepare for this judgment and to repent and return to the Lord and they will experience restoration. Uh, and we'll have, to, we'll have to unpack that as we go along and we won't do it all this morning because it goes on through the end of the chapter. So two main things this morning, all right, uh, as we consider uh, what Joel calls here the, the great and the awesome uh, day of the Lord. And that, that's, for example, in verse 11. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? 
So as we consider this, what, what we want to think about is the, the proper response um, to this warning of judgment. Okay, God is sending a warning through the mouth of Joel of judgment that is coming. And then he's going to call for a response. So, so let's start um, with the first. And let me, too, let me give you one quote here that helps sum it up, too, that helps sum up the idea. And this is coming from John Calvin. He says, The prophet threatens for the purpose of correcting the indifference of the people. All right, so that's the purpose behind these threats that we're reading here, to correct the indifference of the people. All right, so number one here. I'm just going to give you two main points. First is an astonishing announcement. An astonishing announcement. Here it is. Again, verse, uh, uh, verse 2, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming it is near. So there it is. There's the astonishing announcement. The day of the Lord. The day of judgment. It's coming. And it is near. Now, what's so astonishing about that? Well, a couple of things. A um, few things, actually. One is this. All right? We, we already talked last week about the devastation. So, so their, their whole land is devastated. If you, if you just kind of um, look back at chapter 1 for just a moment. They are instructed to wake up, verse 5, to lament, um, to be ashamed, verse 11. They're, they're given some description of, of uh, what, what is happening with the judgment, verse 10. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Kind of put those things in your memory bank there because those, those things represent blessing and prosperity. Grain, wine, oil... Um, oil still represents prosperity in our day. It's just a different kind of oil. But uh, <laughs> this is not the you know black gold Texas tea kind that they're that they're talking about here. Um, so devastation. All right, it's it's going to be a gr- it's a great day of devastation where the the plague of locusts comes in and literally um, destroys their means of living. And then we get more of that in chapter 2. Again, verse 2. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains of great and powerful people. So, so he's describing um, what the day is like, the horror of it, the terror of it, the devastation of it. And at the same time, he's given further description of this great, powerful army. Verse 3. Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns the land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness. So, and, and you can picture that. You know, the, you, you got land like the Garden of Eden. It's lush. Crops are good. But that's in front of the locusts. Behind them, in other words, once they are done doing their uh, destruction, it is just devastation. Before them the Garden of Eden, but behind them a desolate wilderness. And look at verse uh, the end of verse 3. And nothing escapes them. They're, they are thorough. I mean, this is, this is such a, uh, a, a plague of locusts that I mean, everything is destroyed. And then I just read through some of the description of them, verses 4, 5, 6, 7. 
and then verse 8, they do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. See, they're unstoppable. Again, he's, he's likening them to a great army that is just overwhelming in power and number. You, you can't stop them. And, and, they're, and they're, they're, their faces are set, as it were. And they are determined to come in and destroy. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. That is, they just keep steady marching on, doing their damage. And they leap upon the city, verse 9, run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earthquakes before them. The heavens tremble. Again, these are, these are uh, you know, metaphors just describing the, the, uh, the seriousness of the event and the terror the sun and the moon are darkened, and of course you can you can you can imagine a great plague of locusts. That's, that they do have that effect, like a cloud passing over um, blocks the light. I, I, I told you uh, I had seen just recently. I think it was in New Mexico, uh, and I and I've seen similar uh, stories and pictures come out of places like uh, Egypt. But they had they had such a, a cloud of, of locusts over there that they actually picked it up on weather radar. I was in the news just uh, not too long ago, a few months back. And then, um, verse 11, The Lord utters His voice. There's that term Lord again. We're talking about Yahweh. That's the Hebrew term for the true and living God. That's His proper name. Usually, uh, again, signified in the English with the all capitals there. L-O-R-D. Capital L and then and then little capital O, little capital R, little capital D. That's the Hebrew term Yahweh, the covenant name of the Hebrew God, the one true and living God, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, God who gave the law to Moses, God who delivered the people out of the land of Israel. That's the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh utters his voice before his army. Again, that's not talking about the march of the saints. That's talking about the locusts, the plague of locusts. In other words, where is this coming from? It is judgment from the Lord. This plague of locusts that is devastating the land is the army of Yahweh bringing judgment on the people for their indifference. Remember Calvin's words? for their indifference, to, to rouse them out of their indifference. So that's one astonishing thing right there, right? This is, this is the Lord's army. This is not just a, a freak of nature. That's the way we tend to think of these things sometimes. Uh, you know, even the old, uh, I'm not sure if they still do this or not, but even the old, the old insurance claims would, would refer to things like this or things like tornadoes or floods would refer to them as acts of God. Some people get offended by that. That's why I say I don't know if they still do that or not. But they are more accurate than they know. Acts of because God is sovereign. This is one thing that you have to you have to kind of get in your mind as you look at these passages. Really, we should do this with all of Scripture. But as we're going through Joel and as you're considering this coming judgment, this devastation on the land and so forth, remember that God is sovereign. He does what He pleases in heaven and on the earth. He is always working His will, according to Ephesians 
in Romans 8, 28, he works all things for the good of his people. So he, he is in control of everything that happens. God is sovereign. And God is holy. And that's another thing we ought to have in the forefront of our mind, right? When, when considering these things and, and interpretation and application. God is sovereign and God is holy. He does not tolerate sin. He deals with it. There is no... Um, like we have a little metaphor, right? Sweep, uh, analogy or whatever. Sweeping under the rug, you know, when we don't want to deal with something. Just sweeping under the rug. God doesn't do that because He's holy. Because He's a just judge. So He brings recompense on the wicked, for example. He is sovereign and He is holy. So when, when He sends an army... And by the way, a parallel passage for that, I gave it to you last week actually, but uh, 2 Chronicles 7.13. 2 Chronicles 7.14 is often quoted uh, as a call to prayer. You know, um, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray. But, But go back and look at the verse before that where he says he's the one who sends the judgment in the form of locusts or foreign armies or whatever it is. And he says, when I do that, when I do that, then, in fact, uh, let me just read it, verse uh, 13 and 14, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. Did you get that? When I do these things, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So, God is sovereign, and God is holy. God is just. So that's one reason it's astonishing. And and another one is this, and we just saw this in the passage I just read as well. Um, Again, let me read it there again first. In 2 Chronicles 7.13, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. I mean, if you'd stopped just prior to that, and you okay, shut the heavens so that there's no rain, command the locusts to devour the land, send pestilence, surely he's talking about among the heathen. That's, that's the way the Jews would have thought. That's the way they kind of trained themselves to think. And so this was astonishing coming from Joel because what he's saying is the Lord is bringing judgment upon you or us. Joel was a Hebrew. He was a Jew. So that, that's an astonishing announcement that Yahweh, the covenant God, their God, would bring judgment on them. Send an unstoppable army on the land of Israel, to devastate the land of Israel. We're not talking about here God sending it into Egypt or sending it into Assyria or sending it into Babylon. He's sending this army, His army, of locusts upon the land of Israel to devastate their land. Verse 11, The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful. Kind of a proverb. He who executes his word is powerful. But again, it's not talking about 
faithful servants of the Lord? No, it's talking about these locusts that God is sending upon, this army that God is sending upon the land of His people to do the devastation that we talked about last week. And they are exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great. Notice that, the day of the Lord. In other words, this is the Lord, the Lord's judgment. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So there's the astonishing announcement to the people of God. Judgment is coming on you. You could just say it that way. If it had just been, you know what? Judgment is coming on the Babylonians. I mean, they'd have been fine with that. Judgment is coming on the Egyptians. And, of course, there are a lot of prophecies along those lines in the Scripture, and they're fine with that. But that's not the message here. It's God speaking to His people saying, Judgment is coming on you. And I should add, too, uh, because when you read through this, you might say, Now, wait a minute. We, back in chapter 1, we're, we're reading all this devastation, and it looks like it has happened. Past tense. Now, here we are in chapter 2, and Joel saying, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm, my holy mountain. And, and, and as you read on there, it looks like it is future. It's coming. And this is where it gets a, a little hairy, and I'm going, to try to, um, I'm going to try to make it plain here, my understanding here. But in, in the first place, I think a lot of times when you, you, you see this um, idea of coming... Um, we should probably think of it in, in present terms. So, for, for example, look at chapter 2, verse 1. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. And it does seem like what he has described in chapter 1 is past, but now he's giving an explanation of why it has happened and is happening, I think is the way to understand it. In other words, there's, there's more yet coming. And I mean that in two ways. I mean, it sounds as though, because I think this is what Joel is getting at, it sounds as though there is more coming in terms of plague of locusts, while at the same time, it seems that Joel has in mind something, something bigger, something more final, more complete, off in the distance. So he's describing a, a present day of the Lord. God is sending judgment in the form of this plague of locusts, while at the same time, there, there's kind of a, a mixed um, fulfillments, I guess you might say, of, these, of some of these metaphors, so that there's also a distant day where God is going to bring judgment. And this present judgment, though it is real and though it is happening... In their case, it's happened. Though it has happened, it foreshadows this greater event that is going to occur in a distant day. Does that make sense? And I think you'll see that more fully when we get um, to the end of chapter 2 because what we're going to do there is, is compare that with Acts chapter 2 where Peter um, gives us um, some of the interpretation. All right? 
And, and we'll see that it has not yet occurred in terms of the final day of the Lord. The great and awesome day. So, as devastating as this was, this plague of locusts, it was relatively small. And it foreshadowed God's final judgment at the end of time. Okay? So, when, so when he's talking about it, I think both are somewhat in view. So keep, keep that same thing in mind because we're fixing to go to the second point. So, so when he's talking about salvation, he's not only talking about salvation from the plague of locusts, which is going to mean rest, you know, having all their crops restored and their, and their uh, blessings, their, their abundance, their fruitfulness restored. It's not only going to mean that, but he's also going to have in view eternal salvation. Salvation from sin. Salvation from the wrath of God that will be poured out at the end of the age. So, again, the, the salvation that is, that is actually happening in this historical event is, 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 is going to be relatively small compared to the great salvation that God is working for His people and will bring to uh, its fullness at the end of time. And it foreshadows it. All right? So just keep those things in mind, and hopefully I'm not confusing you too much, uh, too much here. Um, like I say, interpretation is challenging. All right, so let's go to the second point, which is um, a call to respond. All right? So you've got an astonishing announce, announcement, that is, judgment is coming. And it's astonishing because it's coming from God and it's coming on God's people. And now is a call to respond. Verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Now, He's calling for a response. And that, that's why he says, you know, he's, he's telling them, for one thing, re- prepare and repent. I mean, that's, that's the, the right response. Blow the trumpet in Zion. That it sound an alarm because judgment is coming. Devastation. And this is urgent. I mean, look at, look at verse 16. Gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. You see what he's saying? This, this should be priority. It doesn't matter if, if you're in the midst of a, of a wedding celebration. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride, the bride leave her chamber. Call out on the Lord now. This is urgent. Judgment is coming. Again, verse 15, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. That's what he's doing. He's calling them 
to uh, verse 15, a, a solemn assembly to fast, to pray, to consecrate themselves. Look at verse 16. Consecrate the congregation. Remember I told you last week. Interesting, isn't it? That He deals with them as a congregation. And you know why? Because God made His covenant with a people. A people. And when a person is born again, saved by the power of God, you become part of a people. A body. The body of Christ. There is no isolation. There is no individualism in the church. You're one Small and I are one small part of a whole. And that is, if you really get to thinking about that and looking at what all the Scripture says about that, it is awesome. It is awesome. So He deals with them as a congregation. Consecrate the congregation. That's a way of saying, be holy. Set yourselves apart. Which is obviously what they haven't been doing. And even though Joel doesn't give us that that detail here, just read through the Old Testament. And you'll see that that is an ongoing issue with the nation of Israel. It's like uh, someone used to say um, in the book of Exodus, you know, God is, God is getting Israel out of Egypt and He spends the rest of the, New, uh, rest of the Old Testament getting Egypt out of Israel. There's a lot of truth to that. They wanted to be not only in the world, but of the world. And so he's calling them to separate. Paul echoes that, by the way, uh, sentiment in, in Corinthians. Let me, let me just give you a, a, a reference or two here before we, before we move on. 2 Corinthians 6.17 Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Now, now Paul is using um, Old Testament language there um, in terms of being sanctified and being holy, but he's, but he's calling on Christians to do this. Separate from the world. Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's not written to the pagans. That's written to the church. Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, just like Joel is talking to God's people in Judah. The message is to Zion. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm. Consecrate Zion. Call a solemn assembly. Get everybody from the oldest down to the infants. Get the priest praying. Verse 17. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. Isn't that something? That God would instruct the priest to cry out and say, Spare your people, O God. And this is essentially what Joel um, is, is, is about. And this is what you see in Isaiah and Elijah. Men like that. That's, that's what they're ministering. That's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're calling the people to repentance and they're interceding. Spare your people, O God. Remember Moses doing that? Standing in the gap for the people of Israel when God was ready to destroy them? 
Remember Abraham doing that for Sodom because, because Lot was there, his kinsman. Lord, if you find 50 right, will you spare the city if you find 50 righteous? Yes, I'll, I'll spare the city if I find... Well, well, Lord, what if it's just 40? Surely you wouldn't destroy the city for lack of 10. Would you, would you spare the city for 40 right? Yes, I'll spare... And, and Abraham just works it on down to the 10. Would you? Yes, I'll spare the... But there weren't 10 there. So what God did was get Lot and his daughters and his wife initially out of there. And Peter said, God knows how to deliver the righteous. So it's astonishing because it is judgment from the Lord, a pronouncement of judgment on God's people, and the response to it should be to repent. He's calling for a response to repent. And listen, it's wholehearted devotion. That's what he's calling for. Verse 13 12 and 13. In fact, isn't that amazing? You, you know, you think, boy, wrath. Today, people don't like to think about wrath. It's not a pleasant thing to think about. But, but, but people say, well, you know, a loving God couldn't do that. Well, of course not with our mushy, you know, messed up idea of love. But a, a God who is truly love and who is truly holy must execute judgment on sin because he is holy and he can't tolerate it. But nevertheless, look at what he says. Yet, verse 12, yet even now, catch that. Because remember, judgment is coming. Judgment, it is near, verse 1. Yet even now, even now, he's going to call for repentance saying, even now it's not too late. It's not too late to respond. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. But here's the deal. He's, he's talking about a wholehearted response. Return to me with all your heart. And remember the, the bridegroom and the bride. It's got to be a front burner issue. There is urgency. Because this, yes, even now, but this, but this period is not going to last forever. Our folks, we're in, we're in a day of grace now. Praise God. Paul said, right now is the day of salvation. Today, is the, this is the acceptable time. But we won't always be able to say that. Judgment is coming. The day is coming. So, return to the Lord with all your heart. Don't, don't hold back. Surrender. To me, that's, that's one of the best synonyms I know for, for repentance. That's what, that's what the Scripture calls for. Surrender. Surrender to the Lord. What's at issue is not, have you said a prayer somewhere over the years? Have you felt goosebumps up and down your spine? Did you get an, an assurance I knew I was lost, now I know I'm saved. That's not the issue. Have you surrendered? Are you surrendered? That's even a better issue. RF used to say, you know, is your, are you breathing? Do you have vital signs now? And we could check all of you this morning. Hopefully we won't have to do that. But, but uh, uh, to see if we're alive physically. Uh, how, we could do that by looking for a pulse, right? Respiratory activity. 
And if it's there, we can safely say, you're alive. I'm alive. But you see, the issue is now. It's not did you once have it. You can go to the graveyard. There's a graveyard right down the street. They, they all at one time had a heart rate and respiratory activity. The problem is they don't now. They're dead. So the question is, are you surrendered now? Turn to me with your whole heart. Rend your heart. Isn't that good? He's, he's getting right. He's talking about something that, go, that goes on on the inside. It's not just putting on sackcloth and ashes, although he is calling for that here. Consecrate a fast. But no, it's, it's, not, it's not just an outward display of religion. You know, I go to church. I've been baptized. I said the prayer. I got the WWJD bracelet and the fish on my car. No, he's, he's talking about something that goes on on the inside that manifests in an outward expression. I mean, it, it will manifest outwardly. When the heart is in submission to the Lord, yes, conduct changes. Are we saved by works? No, we're not saved by works, but we're not saved without them either. You'll have a hard time finding a salvation without works in the Bible. When the Holy Spirit moves in, there's radical change. Radical change. Rend your hearts, not your garments. That's the outward expression, which, you know, you can do that without truly being changed, can't you? You Just pretend to be, uh, you know, that was an expression of of, uh, mourning, repentance, you know, rend the garments. He's saying, no, that's not what I'm, God's saying, no, that's not what I'm looking for. I want your heart to be torn in two. Contrition of the heart. And total devotion, wholehearted repentance. And Joel goes on to say, and listen, we ought not just uh, go over this too fast without really considering it. We had a little discussion in our, our uh, Thursday morning meeting this week, um, and, and this comes up from time to time in discussions, but um, wh- where does repentance come from? The Lord grants it. Remember what I said about Him being sovereign? He is sovereign. It's a gift. That's what Ephesians, Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2. The Lord grants it. Look, look at what he says here. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful. I'm in verse 13. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent? Joel's saying, look, call out to God. He, he may let you live. I wonder how many church services today, if you ended with that, with, with that call, call out to God and He may let you live. How many more invitations to preach you'd get from various places? But that's, that's the way the Scripture talks. On one hand, on the other hand, if there is true heart, whole heart repentance, He assures us that He cast out no one who comes repentant. You know why? You know why he you know why he puts this call out there at all? And why doesn't he just destroy them? Well, because he's made a covenant with them. And again, look at verse thirteen, the latter part. He is gracious and merciful. Hey, wait a minute, we've just been talking about his wrath. I thought he's a God of wrath. Well, he is a God of wrath. Executing judgment on the unrighteous. 
but He is also gracious and merciful. That is, full of compassion. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. He will. Remember He told Jonah, you know, you go, you go to Nineveh, tell him in 40 days you're dead. You're gone. There wasn't even a call to repentance, you know, if, ands, or buts. 40 days and you're dead. Jonah went in there and preached, and you know what they did? They repented. And you know what God did? Relented of the disaster. He didn't destroy them because they repented. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Pray. Intercede. Again, verse 17. Pray, priest. Spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach. A byword among the nations. Let me say this and we'll close. A little bit of application. We've seen how it applies here. What has it got to do with us? Well, Peter says judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And he describes what I would say is, is 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 a parallel. He talks about being hit with trials. Don't think it's strange when you fall into diverse trials. Judgment begins at the house of the Lord. Now, I've kind of touched on this last week, and I've got to be quick about it here because we're out of time. But what was God doing when He was bringing this plague of locusts on the land? I mean, let's look at the whole picture. What was He doing? Was He destroying His people? Did He wipe them off of the face of the earth? Was that it? Israel's history, they're gone. Judah, in this case, their history. No, that's not what He was doing. What he was doing was ultimately was bringing them back into right worship, bringing them close to himself. Now, obviously, if they weren't repentant, those who weren't repentant, um, you know, suffered the consequences. But those who were, right? He's gracious, abounding in steadfast love. And he goes on, we'll have to discuss it next time, but he goes on to talk about blessing and restoration of all that they've lost. So he's restoring because of their, like Calvin said, because of their indifference. In other words, he he wasn't just going to leave them there and just let them be indifferent. He brings judgment to wake them up. Awake! Remember that? Awake! Lament! Be ashamed! Say, well, that's Old Testament. Yeah, it's New Testament too. That's what we see throughout the epistles, what you see in the book of Revelation when Jesus Himself addresses the churches and says, repent or else. And then does just like the Lord does here in Joel, goes on to promise reward to the repentant and right relationship with God, restoration of genuine worship and so forth. So it's a call for self-examination. I think it does have some application for unbelievers. In other words, it's a wake-up call for unbelievers to come and trust the one true and living God. But primarily, remember, the, 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 the prophecy of Joel is to Judah. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is speaking to churches. Paul, what I read in 2 Corinthians 6 and 7, speaking to a church, calling them to be holy, separate themselves. 
So just some, here, here's some suggested things. Because it, and, I'm, and I'm getting this from, from some of the examples he gives in Joel. But here's some, just some suggested questions for, for evaluation. One, are we fruitful? What do you mean by fruitful? And I know a lot of people put a lot of big emphasis on numbers. Now, I don't want to put numbers out of the picture in terms of winning souls. I don't want to say that's irrelevant. But I do want to say that is, that is really not what defines fruitfulness, I don't think. I think you find a better um, idea of that in Galatians where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Does that describe us as individuals and as a church? Is there an evident concern, evident, underline that, is there an evident concern for the glory of God that manifests itself in zealous compassion? We'll see as we move on here that the Lord had zealous compassion for Israel. Well, we should reflect that zealous compassion when it comes to um, winning the lost and edifying one another. So is there a is there a, a evident concern for the glory of God? Because that's the ultimate. In, when we talk about having compassion for the lost or concern for uh, one another's spiritual lives, the ultimate goal there is that God is glorified. So is there an evident concern for the glory of God that manifests itself in zealous compassion for the lost? The Jews of old, like we're reading about here, often lost sight of God's mission and purpose. For us, that's the Great Commission. We don't want to lose sight of that. Go and make disciples. That's why we're here. So are we fruitful in that? Are we seeing conversions? Is the Lord adding to the church? You, you look at um, Acts chapter 2 and 3, for example, Acts chapter 5, and as Paul is moving, uh, we just got through reading through Acts, as Paul is moving on his missionary journey, and the Lord is constantly adding people where there's faithful proclamation. Right? Here's another one. Are we fruitful? Is there joyful worship? That evidence is genuine joy in the Lord. One of the things that joy, that joy Joel is going to point them back to is joy. Restoring the joy. <laughs> Some, sometimes people look back you know, on their um, initial experience. When they came to Christ, as as um, though it was, you know, yeah, man, I, back then I'd tell anybody about Jesus, you know, but I was, uh, as, as uh, almost as though they're talking about their teenage years, you know, I mean, I was young and stupid and all that. Hey, it might be that we need to recapture that. Yeah, I used to, I would tell anybody. What happened? Maybe we need to get back to that. You know what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus? You've lost your first love. You know how he told them to repent? Get back to it. He said, do the first works. Do the first works. That's Revelation 2.5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, that church is going to be history is what he's saying. If you don't repent, you're history. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So there, there's, there's a call, an announcement. Judgment is coming and a call. Repent! Return to 
the Lord. Yahweh, the covenant God, our God. Wholeheartedly. If you hadn't ever been there, come. Come. That's what Isaiah says. Come. Wholeheartedly. Wholehearted devotion to the living God. You say, well, I don't think I can be perfect. No, you can't. I can't either. That's why Jesus came and lived and died on the cross. He came to do what we couldn't do, live a perfect life, and He came to do what we couldn't do, pay for our sin. i tell you what we can do. Follow Him. Love Him. Go after Him with all your heart, with all your strength. What you can do is receive the salvation He has provided. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. We're going to come to that at the end of the chapter 2. Would you stand, please? We'll just dismiss with a word of prayer. Um, Dan, you mind leading us? We'll be dismissed.